Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this passage most certainly hits all of us right between the eyes. We know the the dangers of materialism. But it is so alive and rampant all around us. It's hard to emerge from this culture unscathed by it. Know our own sinful tendencies, our own selfishness, our pride, our arrogance. And sometimes over time we just begin to accept as, as right that which is normal. And in reality, perhaps the very things that are normal are those very things that are being done wrongly and need to be examined. I thank you for, for this reason, Lord, that you have provided us with your word which is true and steadfast and speaks to people of all times, of all ages, and speaks to the reality of where our hearts are, and not only examines our hearts, but then provides the remedy to the issue of our hearts. And I pray today you would, through a discussion of these subjects, draw us closer to Christ, Help us to see the supreme value that is in Jesus. And we value and appreciate and love and worship and obey Him. We pray all this in His name. Amen. Well, Luke 12.1 sets up our setting for this moment in Jesus' teaching. After so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, Luke says... Jesus began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus gave multiple warnings to his disciples on several occasions regarding the leaven of the Pharisees, regarding their hypocrisy. But these words fit so perfectly in Luke's gospel because of what we just finished looking at last week as we've been walking through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ in the gospels. Jesus has just finished explaining the spiritual condition of the religious leaders in Israel. He spoke several woes, first to the Pharisees. He described them as foolish, hypocritical, egotistical, unmarked tombs that were defiling people rather than purifying them. Wow, some harsh words for those who consider themselves to be the spiritual elites, those who are looked up to as the most religious of all people. And then that scribe who happens to be sitting at the table, you know, Raises his hand and goes, ah, Jesus, I think you got too far because you're implicating the scribes too. And that just gives Jesus opportunity to go, well, what you thought was implicit, now I'm going to make explicit. And he begins to send out woes to the scribes as well. He describes the scribes as burden-creating, knowledge-removing hindrances to the people of God. Again, very, very strong language. But Jesus wants to make so clear what was going on with the religious establishment, 
The religious hypocrisy was an all-time high, and their influence was pervasive. And so Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees in verse 1 of chapter 12. And then look at verses 2 and 3. He says, there's nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. Whatever has been whispered in inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Now remember, it is these religious leaders who are very literally plotting the death of Jesus. They want to do away with him. Jesus is saying here, understand that everything that you've done behind closed doors will one day be revealed. And what a good uh, hope it is for all of us as we recognize that hypocrisy is so um, rampant. It's kind of both a warning and a joy in this, that all hypocrisy one day will be exposed. So if you happen to be the hypocrite, be warned. And if you're dealing with abject hypocrisy in this world, recognize that God will ultimately bring judgment upon it. Now, as we did last week, this week, we've jumped over a portion of, of verses. We finished with the last verse of chapter 11, and now I'm starting this morning from chapter 12, verse 13. But the reasoning goes along the exact same lines as my reasoning last week for skipping over the rest of Luke chapter 10. It's because Luke 12, 1 through 2 has a very familiar ring to it. Luke's travel narrative, Jesus kind of journeying around Jerusalem and Judea and Perea, includes a lot of Jesus' actions and uh, ministry that is material that's found in the other Gospels as well. And so we've already spent considerable time talking about the words that Jesus shares with his disciples on this occasion. Now, it is possible one of two things. Either Luke here is just grouping things thematically, and he's saying this is a good place to insert Jesus' words to his disciples. Um, Or the other potential is we have at least two occasions in which Jesus shares the same instruction with his disciples. Neither one would be unheard of, right? How many times do we need to have things repeated to us? So it is quite possible that this is a repeated occasion. The other option is that Luke is by no means bound to a chronological ordering in his gospel. And so perhaps he is including here information from another part in Jesus' ministry because of a thematic organizational reason. But... Matthew does discuss these these words from Jesus in Matthew 10 and in Matthew 12. Jesus calls his disciples to a courageous and faithful witness. He tells them to not fear those who persecute them. For he tells them the worst that they can do to you is kill you. (laughs) And some people are like, man, that doesn't sound like a lot of hope. But it is a lot of hope because Jesus says, instead of fearing them that can only kill the body, you ought to fear who? Him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He says, it's God whom we must Revere, it's him whom we must fear. And if we're in right terms with God, if God is for us, who can be against us? So it's knowing this fact that should redirect whom we fear. Yet knowing that he who deals with body and soul also, as Jesus goes on to explain here, cares for his children. He deeply cares for his children to the extent that we're told here that he even knows the number of hairs on your head. That same God who has power over body and soul knows the exact number of hairs on our heads. The same God who is over all sparrows, the same God who is over all of creation. It is this God whom Christians call uniquely their Abba, their daddy, their father. They've been adopted into God's family through the work of the Holy Spirit. And for them, there ought not be any fear that characterizes our lives as we're completely within the hands of our Father, Jesus then prepares his disciples for the inevitable trials that they're going to encounter. He says, you're going to be called upon to bear witness for me in front of synagogues and in front of rulers and in front of authorities. But he tells them that you can find comfort in knowing that when you bear witness about me in front of them, understand that I'll be bearing witness about you in front of the angels of God in heaven. And they need not worry about what they're going to say. Because Jesus says the Holy Spirit will provide words at the very hour that they are needed. How many of us have experienced the reality of that and perhaps some lesser occasions? You know, it's not like your head's on the chopping block and you're being asked to bear witness to Christ. But perhaps in some social environment where things are going to become awkward and you're given an opportunity to bear witness to Christ. And words just seem to come from you don't know where. And some verses that you've memorized way back when you were like eight years old, all of a sudden come screaming to the front of your mind as you're proclaiming the gospel to someone else. Well, Jesus assures his disciples that in that most trying of moments, they need not worry about what they're going to say, for the Holy Spirit would provide them with words. 
So many incredible reassurances that Jesus provides his disciples there. But since we've already handled all of this in a sermon entitled Fear Not from Matthew 10, 24 through 33, if you want to listen to that, you can pick up on that in on sermon audio. I want to move on to verses 13 through 21, which at first glance might seem a little bit out of place. But this material is actually much closer to the point than might be first realized. Now, the whole thing that we're about to look at is occasioned by an interruption that comes from, we're told, a certain man. And this certain man desires that Jesus adjudicate an inheritance conflict that he's having with his brother. Probably what's going on here is conjecture. We don't have a whole lot of details. But probably what's going on here is his brother is probably older than him. And so his older brother is not wanting to just split up or divide the inheritance. Perhaps he's wanting them to continue working together, and he's not willing to part with some of the inheritance. And so he's coming to Jesus, asking for Jesus to, to side with him and instruct his, his brother to, to uh, divide the inheritance. It's interesting. It kind of sounds very similar to another little family dispute we looked at not very long ago between Mary and Martha. Remember that one? As Martha comes to Jesus and says, tell Mary to help me with the stuff that I'm doing. Again, and we see Jesus responding in some interesting ways in both occasions. Jesus' immediate response to this man is to push off any such mediation from Jesus. Jesus asks, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter or arbitrator over you? Now, there might be three reasons why Jesus rejects to give this man his wishes. I think any... Or all of these are appropriate reasons. First of all, I think Jesus here is deferring to local authorities. There was already a law established in the Old Testament regarding inheritance rights and how inheritance was to be divided. And Jesus here, I think, is avoiding a needless conflict that might come up if he was to make a decision that might go contrasting to local authorities on these sorts of matters. This is something that was common and these sorts of disputes would be brought to local authorities and there would be a discussion as to the merits of the case and there would be a decision made. I think here Jesus is is in a sense, if we could say it this way, picking his battles. He's deciding that this is not um, and this bleeds into my second reason here, is not the main purpose for which he had come. He didn't wish to be sidetracked in his earthly mission. He was indeed, we know ultimately Jesus is the final judge on all matters ultimately. But his mission for his time on earth was to fulfill all righteousness and lay down his life as a ransom for many. He didn't want to get tied up in petty disputes. I mean, can you imagine how many of these sorts of things might come to Jesus if he started offering judgments and everything? It would be just like Moses back in the old days with Israel, right? And he's like, I can't handle a gazillion people coming to me with all their petty issues. And so he set up a system of authority and delegated responsibility to different authorities. And then there was a system of courts that would make judgments on these matters. And we're very, very familiar with that sort of delegated authority in the United States as well. But a third reason might be offered here, which I think is also very pertinent to the text. Jesus had a much more important judgment to make in this case. One which was going to highlight what this man needed rather than what this man wanted. This man came with a desire that he wanted to be fulfilled But Jesus doesn't give him that. He gives him something else. He gives a corrective that is actually aimed right at the heart of what this man really needed to hear. Jesus could have just offered a verdict one way or the other, but he would have missed out on the opportunity about what he's about to just do for us, which I think was the much more needful thing for this man. You know, Jesus is the perfect example of one whose mind was focused on the task at hand. And he was able, as no one else, to discern what was the best expenditure of his time, energy, and resources. In fact, he was even able to redirect this interruption and use it for the good, not only of that man, but for the entire crowd that was surrounding him. While Jesus refuses to offer a judgment regarding the inheritance, Jesus issues a warning. And this warning cuts to the heart of the matter and highlights what should be more concerning to this man And for that matter, everyone else as well. Side note, how often have we behaved like this man? 
Jesus is teaching on spiritual realities. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about the provision of our Heavenly Father to provide us with, with words to say through the work of the Holy Spirit in moments of intense persecution, right? That's where we just were. He just got also done explaining the unpardonable sin. All of that has been present right here. And then this man raises his hand and goes, Hey, help me decide this inheritance problem with my brother. How often have we done the same? How often has a sermon been offered that is dealing with spiritual realities and all we can think about is some physical, tangible, temporary disgruntlement or anger? And so as a result, all the rest of Jesus' words for us are completely lost among, amidst a muddle of other thoughts that we're distracted with. This man is one who's not listening to what Jesus has to say. He's not considering eternity. Instead, he's continuing to make plans regarding earthly temporal matters. But you see, much more important than getting more stuff is having the right perspective towards stuff. (laughs) More important than getting more stuff is developing a right heart and attitude and mindset regarding stuff. Because who you are is far more important than what you possess. Jesus cries out, beware, be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. It's this warning which Jesus wishes to illustrate by means of a parable. And this is a real memorable one, isn't it? You know, there's some of the parables that are just really striking. And this is one of those, I believe. We're not strangers to this teaching device from Jesus. It wasn't too long ago that we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, another classic one that people who aren't even associated with a local church are somewhat familiar with. This one might be a little bit less familiar than that one. We also, about a year and a half ago, spent a whole lot of time walking through Matthew 13, which is just a string of kingdom parables. We're familiar with this. Parabole, Greek word to throw beside, and it literally kind of does what that word says. Jesus pitches out an earthly story that has a spiritual significance. And so we have to walk through the story. We have to understand the main point of the parable and understand how that might have impacted his audience, the original audience. And then from that, make some application of the principles that Jesus is pushing forward. Oftentimes, it's a surprising element in the parable that becomes really crucial to the understanding of the parable. And this parable is no exception to that. Now, this is not the only parable that we come across that involves Jesus giving us instruction regarding money in his earthly ministry. If you're aware of this or not, but nearly one fourth of all of Jesus's parables involve financial considerations. So 25 percent of those stories are have in some way, shape or form or another uh, discussion of money. Or possessions. I think this is just again highlights to us that God cares about how we relate to material wealth. This is very important to our Lord. But before launching into some lessons that we can learn from this parable, I want to provide a couple of boundaries for application. There's always this careful balance because whenever you look at any particular text in the scripture, you, you don't want to remove the shock value that's present. And a lot of these parables have a lot of that. And you want them to really sink in and really cause us to examine our hearts and minds in light of it. But simultaneously, there's always the potential that someone overreacts to that particular point that Jesus is making. And they fail to take into account the full counsel of God. And they result in the wrong place in the other direction. For that reason, I want to put a couple of boundaries. I want to guard against an interpretation which fails to take into account the whole counsel of God, all the scriptures. I mean, it's a really wonderful privilege that God has given us in his word, such a nuanced understanding of our relationship to material goods. And there really is a tension that has to be maintained here. What's the tension? I'm glad you asked. It's it's a tension. It's a tension between guarding against presumption, which can be seen in neglecting to plan, neglecting to save and self-sufficiency. Seen in hoarding, and as has been famously said, getting all you can, canning all you get, and sitting on the can. Right? There's a, there's a tension here between the person who is presumptuous and engages in no saving and no planning, and the person who is the 
uber planner. The, the person who saves and hoards and grabs all they can in order to make themselves self-sufficient in need of no one, perhaps even in their minds, even God. The passage before us this morning challenges our instinct, when successful, to amass wealth and possessions for ourselves, hoarding with the intention, just as this man had, to indulge it in our pleasures. Jesus declares that men engaged in such behavior are fools. We have to consider our tendency to engage in the same behavior. Do we exhibit self-sufficient behavior, hoarding tendencies? But what about the other danger? I want to quickly mention this before we jump into that. What about the other danger? Do we live presumptuously? Proverbs 21.20. Listen to all the wisdom counsel that gives them this. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. The wise man is the one who stores up things, and the fool is the one who devours everything that he has. So it's a matter of wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs, to not consume all of your resources in the present without any eye toward the future. We read in Proverbs 6, we had this read this morning, Go to the ants, O sluggard. Observe her ways, be wise, having no chief, no officer, no ruler. She prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come in like a vagabond, your need like an armed man. See how clearly the book of Proverbs speaks to this reality. We're supposed to learn from the ant. The ant gathers a provision in the harvest in light of the coming scarcity. The ant has to bring in a harvest and prepare for coming days of want. He plans ahead and saves in light of times of lesser production. How many of us have not come in contact with Aesop's fable, the ant and the grasshopper? It has pretty much the same lesson. It's really short. I'll read it. In a field, one summer's day, a grasshopper was hopping about, chirping and singing to its heart content. An ant passed by, bearing along with a great toil, an ear of corn that he was taking to the nest. Why not come and chat with me, said the grasshopper, instead of toiling and moiling in that way. I'm helping to lay up food for the winter, said the ant, and recommend that you do the same. Why bother about winter, said the grasshopper. We have got plenty of food at present. But the ant went on its way and continued its toil. When the winter came, the grasshopper had no food and found itself dying of hunger, while it saw the ants distributing every day corn and grain from the stores they had collected in the summer. Then the grasshopper knew it is best to prepare for the days of necessity. Certainly the, the strongest biblical story of that reality comes from back in the Old Testament book of Genesis. Remember, a certain man named Joseph is given the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, which no one else understood, right? And the Lord provides this interpretation, and Joseph tells Pharaoh that you're going to have several years of plentiful crops, followed by several years of famine, several years of horrible crop production. So Joseph was then selected to store a large portion of the crops to help for the coming years of famine, and Egypt was able to provide not only for itself, but for others as well due to its saving policies over those years. Some people today are forced into that very real situation by the nature of their jobs. Some might work jobs that have definite slow times versus busy times, and, and they have the fun job of trying to budget for such situations. Some, some uh, have to save for those lean months. But no matter what your one's particular profession is, everyone has to be prepared for some amount of unanticipated expenses. Yet it's been shown through statistics that here today, amidst the most affluent society in history, 85% of Americans have less than $250 of available savings when they reach the age of 65. That's not including retirement accounts. They might have retirement accounts, but they only have $250 to their name other than whatever they've got in retirement funds. The average American family is three to six weeks away from bankruptcy. Now, here's the point. If that exists, this lack of savings is due to tremendous amounts of giving to help the needs of others and a deep-seated trust in God's provision, 
This situation could just be the outworking of a tremendously generous person with a very robust faith. And I say in that situation, praise the Lord. But let me ask this. Is it typically, is it typically the result of extreme amounts of generosity and amazing amounts of robust trust that God's going to provide for my daily bread? That is fostering Americans to have a mere $250 of available savings by the time they reach 65? Or is it instead the product of self-indulgence, presumption, and lack of discipline? Let those words sink into all of our hearts this morning, wherever we lie on this matter. So there's a need for us to consider the wisdom of ants. And to put aside some present earnings for the future. To do so is to avoid presuming upon others to assume responsibility for our own future needs. Is to be conscientious and discerning of the days in which we live. Where we hope not only to have something for ourselves, but if something bad happens, to have something for others too. Get that. You see, attitude is so important in this regard. You can save for right and for wrong reasons. There are those who save out of fear. They lack faith in God's provision. And there are those who save out of greed, amassing wealth to be spent on vain indulgences and their own pleasures. And then there are those who save out of wisdom and save out of love. This is where we begin to see the incredible corrective that Jesus provides in the parable of the rich fool, as it's famously remembered. Here in a sermon entitled, The Foolishness of Hoarding, I want to just consider quickly three oversights from which every hoarder operates. There are three oversights that I think Jesus' parable here exposes to us and shows this is where a hoarder operates from. This is their home base of operations. There are three failures that they make. The first is a failure to recognize God's provision. They fail to recognize God as the provider. That's one thing. Secondly, they fail to to realize God's purpose. They fail to realize what God's purpose is for giving wealth. What is God's purpose for that? And third, they fail to regard God's plan. They've done all of their planning, but God is strangely absent from the plans that they have made. Three oversights. The first oversight every hoarder operates from is a failure to recognize God's provision. You see, abundance is often wrongly considered to be man's property and that which a man earns by his own merits. There are many in our world that believe that what they have is theirs. They own it. And it came to them through their own merits on some level. As Jesus begins his parable, we're introduced, by the way, don't miss this. The whole parable is introduced. We're introduced from the very beginning to not a man, but a land. We're introduced to a land, not a man. He says, the land of a rich man was very productive. The land of a rich man was very Productive. I find this quite interesting. The focus is upon a particularly fruitful piece of land which a man had laid claim to. Now, mind you, this man might have overseen the preparation of the soil, the sowing of the seed, the watering, and the harvest of the crops. But this man, note this, friends, did not create the soil. He didn't put the particular elements or minerals in the soil. He didn't create the seed. He didn't make the sun. And he certainly didn't create... The rain. This man did not cause the crops to actually grow. And whatever indirect means he utilized, they were themselves first provided to him. Yet the most notable element in this entire parable is the I, my refrain. I, my refrain. Listen to it. He was dialoguing to himself. As if there was no one else he could go to for wisdom. He's, he's at the top of the pyramid, so, you know, who does he talk to? He just talks to himself. What am I going to do about my problem, self? What might I do since I have nowhere to gather my crops? And he said, this I will do. I will tear down my barns and will build larger ones. And there I will gather all my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have goods laid into many years. Relax, eat, drink. Be merry. 
<laughs> Note how this man even nests conversation to himself. He speaks to himself about himself. And he pontificates about what he will say to himself at a future occasion. <laughs> this is what I will say to myself when this happens. And the only time he ever speaks about you is when he's referring to his own soul. Now he's addressing himself in the second person as well. Just waiting for the third person to be put in here as well. And we may laugh at such ridiculous self-centeredness. However, when's the last time one of these dialogues happened in your head? What am I going to do with all of my stuff? What am I going to do with all of my resources? What am I going to do with all of my money? You see, abundance must be received as God's provision. Do you guys realize that all of this man owned was really on loan to him? He didn't own anything. God maintains ownership of all things. These things were really on loan to this man. The man had amassed quite a lot of stuff based upon the good production of the land. But farmers should know better than anyone just how tenuous one crop is to the next. Years of plenty can be quickly followed by years of want. An entire crop can be lost in minutes. All of this continues to lay in the Lord's hands. This man is so egotistical that he failed to recognize that God was the giver of all good gifts. And his dialogue with himself manifested his failure to recognize God's wonderful provision. The first error of hoarding is precisely this. Failing to recognize God as the owner of everything. If you believe you are the owner, then sure, you can do whatever you want with stuff. But if God owns all the stuff that you happen to have in your hands, then do you have the same freedoms? Can you do whatever you want with what is God's? The hoarder fails to recognize that all that he has is the provision of God. And the Greek here is quite interesting at the end of this text. Jesus says, after he says to him that you're a fool, he says, this very night your soul is required of you. Your, this night your soul is asked from you. Really interesting Greek here. Is asked. This is terminology that was used to speak of a lender who called in a loan. Now, I'll give you a loan today. It's time for you to pay that back to me. And this is the language that God is using here with this man. He's calling him in for an accounting. What have you done with my resources, God says? Not yours, mine. What have you done with them? This man's error is highlighted here. He thought of everything as his. When in reality, he was merely a steward entrusted with these resources for a time. And he would be held accountable for how he utilized them. And now time is up. And all that this guy has amassed would be distributed to others. He says, and who will get all the stuff that you've made all these preparations? Who's going to get it? But as is demonstrated by this man's choices in his life, nothing of it would be distributed to anyone else until literally over this man's dead body. And the moment this man died, guess what? All that stuff would be distributed to someone else. If instead we recognize that everything we have is provided by our God, and we know our God to be a kind father who looks after his children, then we have no need to amass stuff for ourselves out of fear, for our father will take care of us. As he has provided for us in the past, so he will provide for us in the future. And this is exactly where Jesus goes in the next verses in this account, which we've also looked at in the Sermon on the Mount already in Matthew 5, 6, 7. But look at verses 22 through the end of verse 34. That whole section that Jesus goes into right after this parable Talk about these very things. This is the reason I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, or your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food. The body's more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn. Yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? 
Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. Seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Randy Alcorn poses a, a great question. His book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, if you have not read it, get it and read it cover to cover. Does the same Christ who said we should look to the birds and lilies and trust our Heavenly Father to provide for our futures and that we are to lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth really want us to stockpile gold bullion and store up years of freeze-dried food in a bomb shelter? Does that really sound like what Jesus would call us to do? Saving is a means of not presuming upon God, but hoarding is a means of replacing God. The second oversight which every hoarder operates from is a failure to realize God's purpose. A failure to realize God's purpose. And understand this. I'll say it negatively first and then we'll say it positively. Abundance is not given to be greedily hoarded. God doesn't give more than you need so you can hoard it. The man in Jesus' parable considers only himself while he's presented when he's presented with this great agricultural success. He speaks to himself, he thinks of himself, he works for himself, he plans for himself, he indulges himself. And Jesus summarizes this man's preoccupation with his own greed by saying, Thus is the one treasuring for himself and is not rich toward God. And what's so foolish about it, there's a couple layers here of foolishness. First of all, All the preoccupation with getting stuff just gets you unhappiness. It just gets you anxiety. Ecclesiastes 2, Ecclesiastes 5 has some really good instruction in the matter. I'm just going to summarize a couple of those things with these statements. The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. The more you have, the more people, including the government, come after it. The more you have, the more you realize it doesn't meet your real needs. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. The more you have, the more you have. You can hurt yourself by holding on to it. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And the more you have, the more you'll leave behind. I chuckle every time I get somebody who comes. And I don't, I'm not making any blanket judgments about whether or not you have a security system. But I have some person who comes by and asks me just about every week if I want to buy a security system for my house. And I always look at him and chuckle. I go, I don't have anything worth stealing. It's amazing. I don't have any anxieties or worries because if someone took everything from my house, do you guys really know just about everything in my house was given to me from somebody else, either in this church or somehow related to my family. I mean, it's all gifts. I'm thankful for them. I don't mean to be ungrateful. But the other side of things is this. There's a real reality to this, isn't there? I know you've experienced that. I know I have. You buy something new. Now there's something to worry about somebody messing up, isn't there? When we hold things like that, It's just anxiety. It's unhappiness. What joy is there in that? You see, materialism is an endless procession of if-onlys. Happiness is elusive. The idea of just a bit more. If I just had a little bit more. And it it never satisfies. You never get there. This is why Jesus says, even in a man's abundance, he doesn't find his life. Life isn't found there. You can seek fulfillment in money and lands and houses and cars and clothes and boats and campers and hot tubs and world travel and cruises. And all it does is leave you bound and gagged by materialism. It's almost like a drug addict keeps going back for another hit. We do the same thing with stuff. We think if we just get this one more thing, all of a sudden we're going to be, we're going to feel good and we're going to find happiness. And that's, that's the one part of this that makes it foolish, because you never actually gain what you want out of it. But the other side of this that, that Jesus is really emphasizing is, it doesn't prepare you for eternity. Even if you found some fleeting, temporal happiness, it only lasts that long, and it's gone. It's like a breath, it's like a vapor. 
And you, you notice this with me. We have nothing in the text that says this man did something sinful to acquire his wealth. He didn't go to another man's field and steal it. He didn't, you know, there's no specific sin of commission being enacted here in order for him to gain his stuff. He wasn't, you know, doing some bad business practices, unethical things and stealing money from the coffers or something. This guy's just doing, doing work and he's earning money. But do you notice that it's not just a matter of sins of commission, but sins of omission. This man fails to consider his neighbors. He fails to consider anyone else. All he's thinking about is himself. And this is the point. God does not give you more than you need so you can hoard it for yourself. That's the end. That's that's what's so foolish about this man. He doesn't understand God's purpose for giving wealth. If you walk out of here today saying that I was rejecting wealth, you've missed me. The point that Jesus is making is not that people who have a lot are sinful. It's all about the heart attitude regarding these things. Do you recognize what God's purpose is in giving you more than you need? I said it negatively. It's not to be greedily hoarded. But what is it supposed to be then for? Good question. Glad you asked. Here we go. Abundance is given to rebound to God's glory. First of all, to rebound to God's glory. You recognize that God provides for our needs. He gives to provide for our needs. But then God gives more. And then at that point, we have to ask why. I mean, we're creaturely, right? We're dependent on God. If he didn't give, we wouldn't exist. So there's a sense in which, in order to keep us existing, he has to provide at least that. But we all, everyone in this room, has experienced more than just the bare necessities of life. Have we not? So then we have to ask the question, why? Why does God do this? Well, I think the thing that has to center, has to be the, the prime focus of our intentionality regarding the abundance that God gives, is to recognize that God gives an abundance to provide us with an opportunity to give back to Him. You could never give God anything if He hadn't first given to you. And God allows us the privilege, the responsibility, the tremendous honor to give because he gave first. He grants us the privilege of expressing our love and gratitude to him through giving. We're told in John 3.16, very, very famous verse, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. And he gave us his son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, God, God's love caused him to give. But if God hadn't first given to us, we would have no way in any sense or form to express our love back to God. So God gives us more than what we need. So there's things there to be given in love back to the Lord. But the man who greedily hoards all that he can misses out on this wondrous privilege. It is an honor. It is a privilege. Has he not come to realize That one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Riches certainly don't make a man contented. They don't make a man joyful. Consider this testimony of wealthy men. John D. Rockefeller said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. He also said, the poorest man I know is the man who has nothing but money. Vanderbilt said, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. Henry Ford said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. And Solomon, Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. Why can't we just wake up and realize that everyone who's ever had tons and tons of money sees it as a burden, did not find happiness in it? How futile the pursuit of it is. Meanwhile, Paul, in his letter to the church of Philippi, can speak of learning the secret of contentment, both when he had a lot, both when he had humble means, and when he had prosperity. He can also then experience and share joy in the midst of persecution, and he can command rejoicing in the Lord always. All happened in the book of Philippians while Paul's in prison. And Peter can announce that the joy that is found in Jesus even through trials. First Peter 1, 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, 
even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, listen, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You see, God did create us with the capacity for great joy and great happiness. It's not that we're not created for happiness and joy. We are. The problem is when you substitute anything else in that place that God alone can have. You will find joy inexpressible and full of glory, but it will only be found in Christ. You see, abundance is given so we can worship and adore and give to, back to the Lord. It's also given, though, to help our fellow man. Not only does the abundance that God provides allow us an opportunity to give back to Him, but it affords us the opportunity to do good to others, to share with one another. And there is tremendous joy in that, isn't there? I, if you haven't experienced joy, if you haven't done it, there is tremendous joy that comes from being able to share with one another. Ephesians 4.28, He who steals must steal no longer, listen, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Now, the passage stopped right there. We're like, well, that's, that's a good corrective. You know, instead of stealing, you ought to work for yourself and earn some money. But it doesn't stop there. That's not the end of the story. The end of the story is what it goes on to say in the next, next portion of it, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. You see how this is completely reversed? Instead of stealing and taking, you're now earning so that you can give. That's the picture. 1 Timothy 6, we had this read this morning as well. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is, listen, life indeed. Jesus said what? Not even in abundance of possessions does a man find life. He says, give away possessions and money that you might find life indeed. Third oversight from which every hoarder operates is a failure to regard God's plan. A failure to Regard God's plan. This man is a fool because he's short-sighted. What? Short-sighted? I mean, he's thinking about years, many years into the future. You're saying he's short-sighted? Yes, I'm saying he is most definitely short-sighted. We know that Jesus is utilizing this parable to provide a negative example that we ought to be warned from. The context of the parable makes that plain. But if you didn't know that and you didn't have the explanations and intro, the intro warning and then the explanation afterward, and it was just sitting there by itself. I think many of us look down, read that and go, huh, there's the American dream, right? Be successful. If you don't have enough place to store it, build bigger storage containers. Fill them up. Eat, drink, relax, enjoy life. Does that sound like the American dream? Maybe they would add to that and let your kids do the same. This generational wealth forever so we can all indulge our pleasures. Sounds like the American dream. Aren't there many who are spending their life acquiring money to ensure themselves and future generations wealth and prosperity? And is not the goal for many to relax, eat, drink, and be happy? The rich fool had that down to an art. He was given more success. He tears down his barns. He makes room for further stores of resources. He piles up his stuff to secure his future relaxation. What's the problem with all of this? Well, he was foolish. He made a miscalculation. It's like as if there was a variable that was completely left out or something completely changed the entire equation and he completely neglected it couple things that can be mentioned. We've already mentioned some of these failures here. But certainly part of it was that he didn't even have many years to enjoy his riches. 
He says to his soul, soul, we've got it good now. We're going to live on easy street. We're going to kick back, relax. We have many years. But he didn't know that very night his soul was required by the Lord. We're born similarly in James 4. James 4 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And here's the deal. Even if the man had many years, which he didn't, but even if he did, even after that, he would leave all of his earthly possessions behind. And this is why this man shows short-sighted perspective. Because all he's thinking about, friends, is the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And what is that in reference to eternity? Now, granted, there are some of us who are only thinking about maybe the next hour. And the Bible speaks to making plans. And not that plans of themselves are wrong. You see how even the corrective there in James. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. So, in other words, there's still a contemplation about what we're going to do. But there's a recognition that God's sovereignty extends over all these plans. And they can all be completely changed. The presumption and arrogance that we go about with is ridiculous. How many of you had control over when you were born? How many of you had control over how your heart is beating right now? Whether or not your lungs are going to take another breath? Any one of us could have an aneurysm and be dead like that. There's so many that think that they're thinking about the future when in reality they're very short-sighted because all they're thinking about is this earthly life and this earthly life is nothing in comparison with the life to come. And we're all going to face death and when that day comes, you're going to leave everything behind. All your earthly possessions, you're not taking one scrap of it with you. Solomon bemoaned that situation in Ecclesiastes 2. He said, you know, I work my whole life and amass all this stuff, and at the end it gets given to somebody else who might just squander it in a moment. This is vanity, Solomon said. When Rockefeller died, his accountant was asked, how much did Rockefeller leave? You've heard this one, right? His accountant said, all of it. All of it. The Egyptians, with all their elaborate beliefs regarding the afterlife and putting mummies inside a sarcophagus and putting them down underneath big, massive pyramids, which they would even put into those rooms all kinds of possessions and all the rest, none of that stuff went with them. They thought you could make it useful in the afterlife. None of that went with them. The only way anything left that room is if some robber came in there and stole it or some archaeologist came in and took it. But recognize that there are no U-Haul trailers being pulled by hearses, are there? <laughs> I'm not taking anything with you of an earthly nature like that. It might be a worthwhile activity. I think we mentioned this when we went through our little uh, thing on stewardship. Worthwhile activity to just take a field trip to the local landfill and just see where all our stuff goes. Everything eventually just wears out, doesn't it? And even if it lasts through your lifetime, you won't take it with you. You see, the proper perspective is to live in light of eternity. And the point of Jesus' parable is not to demonize success. Please don't hear that. That's not my point. Be successful and do it for the glory of God. Be someone who makes masses of money for the glory of God. Hold everything with open hands. Say, Lord, you use this. You give me talents. And if you allow me the ability to make large amounts of money, let me invest it in your kingdom. Let me do good to others with it. People are misguided if they come after rich people. They recognize that people who are poor can deal with the same coveting, can deal with the same problem of love of money. It doesn't matter how much you have. You can covet more than you have right now. And you can do improper things with what you already have. 
This is why Jesus' warning against greed is appropriate for all of us. And this phrase, be on guard, depicts a continual vigilance. You must always be on guard against it. Because greed can pop up at any time from anywhere, sometimes from the unlikeliest of places, and sometimes at the most unexpected times. Sinful attitudes towards money can come from the richest or from the poorest. A man can covet and lust after material goods from a, from a place of poverty, or he can do that from a place of prosperity. We all need to be corrected by Jesus' correction here. I think it's so fitting that Jesus calls him a fool. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Bible says the atheist is a fool. Recognize this man lived at least bare minimum as a practical atheist. Do you notice in all of this conversation, dialogue with himself, not one mention of God's provision, not one consideration of God's plan, not one thought to God's purpose. This man lives as if there is no God. And there are a lot of people today that claim to be Christians, but their life screams atheism. Because their interaction with money is no different than the guy who says, I don't believe there's a God. You look at their checkbooks, it's the same as the atheist. I go, why? If we really know that we're storing up treasures in heaven and not here on earth, why would we spend our whole life amassing stuff that we can't take with us? Why plan from a finite perspective when God provides us his perspective? Above all, we need to make sure that we're planning for the right future, our eternal one. We need to make investments that pay off not just 30 years from now, but 30 million years from now. That's the perspective that must grip our hearts and grip our minds. And then isn't it interesting, if that really grips our hearts, then all these petty disputes just are petty. Right? This guy comes up, tell my brother to divide your inheritance. Like, I'm sure I'm treasure in heaven. You can have the sneaking inheritance. There's a sense in which, I, I love this in 1 Corinthians 6, is why not rather be wronged? Why are you taking brothers in Christ to court authorities? Why are you dragging the gospel of Jesus Christ before unworldly people because you can't get things straight between yourselves? In such a case, if a person is unbending, just be wronged. Just say, I forgive you. I'm going to, I'm going to let this go. I'm amassing not stuff here, but in heaven. And when we act like the world, and we try to pull things to ourselves, are we demonstrating the real hope that we have? Our hope isn't in stuff here, guys. Our hope is in heaven. And the wonderful thing about treasures stored up there is that moth and rust don't destroy, and thieves don't break in and steal. No stock market crash will ever kill riches that are in heaven. No thief can come in and steal your riches if they're in heaven. No one can burn down your house if it's there in heaven. No matter what we have, if it is being stored up in heaven, it cannot be taken from us. I'm going to close with, I think, where we can err in reading this parable. We can err in one of two ways. Number one, we can claim we're not rich because we can find people who are more wealthy than us and so therefore it doesn't apply to me. Or secondly, we can just claim that we're not fools. We can laugh at him as the fool and say we're not that way. But in response to those by global and historical standards, even when I look at that, we're easily in the upper 20% of the world's wealthy and we truly are fools if we think we don't fall victim to the same lines of thought as this rich fool. We're in denial. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that the Bible is describing someone else's problem. We love to nudge our children, don't we? And our spouses. Mm, you need to hear that. Or we look around the church and we go, oh, I know there's a family in here that needs to hear that. I mean, all the whole time we're missing that the Lord is screaming at our heart. What about me? Evangelicals in America are the wealthiest Christians in the history of the world. Yet statistically, we give less than 4% of our gross income to gospel work. Now let me ask the question, where does our treasure lie? Where does our treasure lie? 
Why are we able to find money for possessions and upgrades and entertainment, but we're not able to find money for the advancement of the Lord's kingdom? Why? See, the beauty of this is that as a pastor, you don't have to rail about what, how much you're giving. I just have to, I'm just presenting the principles of scripture. Here's the, here's the question. It's a very logical question. Where are you storing up your treasure? Somewhere where you're ultimately every day that passes, you're getting one step closer to leaving it all behind? Or are you storing up somewhere where every day that passes, you're getting one step closer to receiving your true inheritance? Which will it be? I've watched the TV show Hoarders with my life. Maybe you've seen it. I've stood speechless as uh, psychologists and organizers and cleaning crews go in to help people who have real big problems with hoarding. Some of the conditions that the people live in are not only unsanitary, but life-threatening. Houses piled up with a lot of times even refuse and garbage and rotten food. and It's just it's, it's horrendous. Um, as a result of their hoarding, family members have been estranged. People are gone out of their life. They've hurt their closest relationships. And meanwhile, they're still unable to give up the continual lust for more stuff. They're sitting there crying over literally not spilt milk, but spoiled milk. Literally. And meanwhile, their family's estranged from them. And they say on one level, they want things to be right with their family and for things to be back to normal. But on another level, they cannot give up all the junk. And it's literally, in most of these episodes, garbage around them. What makes the show sad to people is the sort of stuff that is being amassed. Most of it is trash. But as I was reflecting upon it, I think that a show like this could potentially do us a disservice. I find it interesting that one show on hoarders has ever been done on a rich mansion-like household filled with designer cars and designer suits. Not once have they done an episode where they walked into a, a lush, beautiful, amazing, massive place. The guy who's got 18 Rolls Royces in the garage and... 50,000 TVs throughout the house. Obviously, everything's a comparison, right? But I've never seen one of those. The only episodes that have ever happened are people who've collected what we would say is garbage. But who's really the fool? Yeah, they might be collecting garbage, but ultimately, if your life is just stuff, it's garbage. Because life does not consist and the amassing of stuff. Now, I don't care where you are in the spectrum. We all need to seriously ask ourselves about how we relate to material things. The issue is not about how much you have or how much you don't have, but what your attitude is about what you do not have and your generosity with what you do have. I'll say it real plainly. You can be a lot more rich than other people but due to your generosity, the way you interact with those things, God is pleased with you. And you could be someone very poor, and God is not pleased with the way you interrelate to money. It is not a matter of how much, but it is a matter of the heart. Perhaps this is a fitting way to close. This is a quote from, again, another quote from Randy Alcorn. My life is just really rocked by his book. I just... Really, really convicting. And he's asking a question regarding retirement accounts. And I just, I just throw this out there as a question that I think is well asked and something we should all consider as I close. Randy Elkhorn asks, What would happen if I took part, most, or all the funds I would otherwise put into retirement and invested them in God's kingdom? Financial counselors would tell me that I would be jeopardizing my retirement years. Might God say I would be enhancing my eternal years? If I waste the money, spend it, or I'm just a poor planner, that's one thing. 
But will God really fail me if I invest these funds in his kingdom in an honest effort to obey his words in Matthew 6, 19-21? However we think through retirement planning, when in doubt, we ought to give rather than hoard. Remember, the rich fool never had any opportunity to use the money and possessions he stockpiled for himself. Will the excess funds that we hoard become as filled with worms as Israel's hoarded manna? Remember, ants store for a winter, not a decade of them. Absolutely, it's the attitude that is the most important in this. But we all can admit the difference between saving a couple thousand dollars for a rainy day and a quarter of a million dollars that could last a rainy decade. And considering our future needs, we must not neglect the present needs of those around us. Daryl Bach summarizes, only wealth handled with generosity meets with God's approval. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's a sobering message for us to consider. And Lord, sometimes your word, when just proclaimed, it's it's hard for us to grapple with. We consider where we are in light of it, and we we feel the tension of this. We we feel the tension of passages like consider the ant and store up regarding years of want. We want to be wise and discerning. We don't want to be spendthrifts. We we want to be Considerate in all of our actions. It's a tough tension, Lord. I know that I, for one, can admit from the outset that I, I have not figured this out. I see the principles your word gives us and I can see the way in which it ought to impact my heart and mind. But I also recognize that it's a continual perspective shift that has to happen because in the flesh, I don't operate from that mindset. Please grant me, Lord, a rightful perspective of material possessions. Help me to see them as opportunities to worship you and opportunities to share and help others as well as provide for the needs of my family. Lord, please help us walk through this. Grant us a willingness and desire to obey you, whatever that might be. Help these principles to guide our decisions in financial planning. And may it be evident to a watching world that our treasures are being stored up in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for that privilege. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.